actually are in the presence of holy, 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 almighty God, how there's going to be no, you know, chink in the song service or any technical problem, no heart problem, because we're just going to be in awe. And, you know, it's, it's by faith we worship him now and we understand through the word that he's holy. But when we're in the presence of Jesus glorified and we have made it past this, this sea of Jordan after we die and we get to be with him. And when all things come to consummation, you just think about what will it be like in the presence. You, you, now you might have to sometimes force yourself to sing. You won't be able to contain yourself in his presence. You'll be holy. And it's, uh, holy means set apart. There's none like him, and there's nothing that we can compare to him. That just, that's, that's, it's going to be something. And so we praise God, and, and I'm thankful that we can get together today, and we can continue uh, our messages to the seven churches. Um, I'm going to start today, maybe I'll get your attention, I'm going to say a nasty word. No, you don't have to cover the ears of the kids. It's not not that kind of word. But, um, no, the word I'm going to mention today is what we're talking about with the two churches. And the word is, brace yourself, compromise. And so we're looking today at the church of Pergamos and Thyatira. And the, they had the same problem. It was compromise. And when we talk about compromise... I'm not talking about the friendly kind of compromise, like, what do you want for dinner? Oh, I want beef, and someone says, I want chicken. Oh, well, let's compromise. We'll go get tacos. That's okay. You know, don't worry about that. But compromise is a very nasty word when it talks about institutions like the church or companies, corporations, or politics. But most importantly, compromise can be a great destroyer of lives, especially your spiritual life. And if that gets compromised, your, your outer life gets compromised too quite often. And we read of scandals. We hear of pastors that have fallen because of uh, indiscreet affairs or whatever. And it's not just pastors, but it can be anybody. And if you're a Christian, and, and there are Christians involved in scandals like that, if, if that has happened, I guarantee that it didn't happen just by surprise or in a, a whim of passion. In other words, you don't just wake up one day and, and all of a sudden you fall into this scandal. It starts with compromise, little bits of compromise along the way. And the compromises just lead down a path until finally... Uh, there's been so much numbing of the spirit or numbing of the conscience or numbing of discernment that you just find yourself too far in and boom, it's done. So the way to avoid downfalls and scandals is to not compromise. And so this is what we're reading about today because this will provide us a chance to be warned and to be alert. And I'll tell you, it's not always easy to preach in Revelation because some of it is very harsh language. It's harsh. And it's, you know, we like to preach the feel good and the encouragement and the, uh, the God loves you and everything. But there is harsh language here, and especially in this passage today, we're going to be looking at the passage Revelation 2, 12 to 23. I'm not going to read through the whole passage, but I'm going to be picking at parts of it. And some of it has some of the most fierce words of Jesus you can read in the Bible. And uh, we don't 
it's not a comforting thing to read fierce words coming from Jesus, but it is coming out of love. Sometimes you hear preachers, and they're, they're trying to make you feel guilty and trying to bring conviction, and they're thumping you with the Bible, and they've got a scowl on their face while they're talking, and you better turn or burn, things like that. And they might be speaking truth, but in a harsh tone, it doesn't settle well with some people, at least. You speak the truth in love, and so you can speak harsh truths in love. Sometimes we need harsh truths, and we ought to be open to receiving harsh truths if we know that they're given in love, and they're given with the intent of saving us and helping us to get along a better path, right? So, you know, a a child's running toward the traffic. You're not going to say, oh, you know, you're loved, little one. Keep going, but no, no, don't don't come back. No, you speak harshly. Say, stop! You know, you want to get their attention. And so I believe when we read harsh words in the book of Revelation, it's to get our attention. It's to get uh, awareness of where we are in our situation. But a lot of the harsh words that are spoken pertain to those who are unrepentant, and we'll talk about that too. So we're all inclined to receive correction, hopefully, in the body of Christ, because it's really a blessing. It's a blessing to be put, you know, If a child is not disciplined, it's not loved, it says in in Hebrews chapter 12. Discipline comes from love. And if you just let the child go and do their own thing, and they end up growing up, doing their own thing, and heading down into a sewer, it's because you didn't love them enough to discipline them and put them in their place when they needed to be taught. So we come as children, and we come not fearing discipline. And some of these things that we're going to talk about today, today don't directly apply to us because part of the issue was a church that was offering food or they were both offering food sacrificed to idols. I don't think anyone in here does that. But yet, uh, and I'm I'm praying nobody in here commits sexual immorality, which is the other issue that they were compromising with. Where that might not be applicable directly, we can still learn some truths and how to apply them where we could use help from the warnings. So, but first, it's not just all a hit you with what's wrong. Jesus always shares the good as well. And we're going to look at some very commendable things in these two churches. They both had some very excellent qualities, and we can learn from that too. In Revelation 2, verse 13, talking to the church at Pergamos, it says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas, Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. All right, there's two, two mentions of Satan dwelling in this place, which I find pretty interesting. This is the place, Pergamos was the place where Satan dwells. Now, I thought Satan dwelled everywhere. Well, he does. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that he is the God of this world, the little G God of this world. He's all over the place. He's influencing. He's corrupting all over the place. But it must have been so bad for Jesus to have mentioned twice, you live where the throne of Satan is, where Satan dwells. And so we think about how bad things have got in our nation. We think about how bad things are in the world today. And actually, they're really not much worse than they ever were. In fact, it was probably way worse where they were dwelling in Pergamos. Pergamos was a place that had, uh, it was a hub of temple worship. 
and emperor worship and idolatry, all these things, and Satan dwelt there. It must have been very serious. Um, you know, things bad here in America right now, but I've heard that they were much worse in Rome. The sexual immorality, the corruption in the culture, things like that. We're not really experiencing anything different. We're just experiencing what the Bible says has always been around, and it's going to always be around as long as Satan dwells in this place, the little G God of this world. But as I said last week, he's only a limited God. His, his power is on a time stamp. It is diminishing from him, and uh, we get the glory in the end seeing his demise. And even now, it has begun in your life. As you follow the Lord, you begin his demise. That's why he opposes Christians, because every advance you make as a Christian diminishes his kingdom rule. And so that's why you get into these battles. You know, why is Satan always attacking Christians? Well, he hates the Lord, but he also hates losing his kingdom rule. And as we make advances and as we seek to reach the community, reach others for Christ, win souls, we are attempting to snatch people out of his kingdom rule. And so, of course, that makes him angry. But Jesus said they were living in this place, and yet they held fast to my name and didn't deny my faith. And this is very commendable. They were persevering in a place that was very difficult. In fact, if there was emperor worship there, they were probably needing to confess Caesar as Lord, but they wouldn't. They would confess Jesus as Lord, and that would get them in trouble. And they knew the cost of not denying his name. They held fast to his faith. They did not deny his name. They knew the cost, and they persevered through it, even at the loss of a loved one, the faithful martyr Antipas. How's that for faith and, and for walking with the Lord? It's easy to persevere when everything's going right, well, right? I mean, it's easy when there's no problems and everything's good, nobody's coming at you for being a Christian, it's not threatening to your household, your job, or whatever. That's easy. And good, stay the course with that. But it's something that's going to be commended by the Lord when you get into a corner and there's nothing else but to lose something for the sake of the gospel. That's when it's difficult. And that's what this church was holding fast to. They were persevering. And even one of them, Antipas, lost his life because of it. So you can, you can be overcome by the hardships and the trials and the threats persecution, or you can turn them into an opportunity to say, this is my chance to witness for the gospel, and this is my chance to, as we said in Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, trust in the Lord with all my heart and lean not on my own understanding. And acknowledging him through it, he will direct our paths. And it may not be pretty, it may not be fun, but it's going to win in the end. I like uh this picture from an old Keith Green album. Everybody, anybody remember Keith Green, 70s singer? And, and he was a big influence. He was kind of a radical prophet preacher kind of guy more than a musician, but he used his music to, to uh, do ministry. And he had an album called No Compromise. And the album No Compromise, the cover had a cartoon picture of a crowd of people bowing down before a, a pharaoh being carried in a chariot before them. And there was one guy standing up in the crowd. You saw him from the back. No, standing for what's right. And that's what was going on here. They were standing for what's right. 
the lesson for us is, are we going to stand when everyone else is bowing? Everyone else is giving in to political correctness. Everyone else is giving in to uh, the compromise of the teachings and the, of the culture and the woke and the sexual perversion and things like that. There are churches that are going right along with it and saying, well, I guess we need to adjust things. And Jesus would say here, no, you need to hold fast to my faith and not deny my name. So, scary stuff or no? No, it's going to get it's going to get ugly out there. Hopefully it'll get better. Maybe we're wrong, but we need to be prepared if it does get ugly to be the one standing and not bowing down. And if it costs something, Jesus says all the more, you're blessed is your reward if you suffer persecution for my sake. So that's what they had going for them. And oh, let's notice this about it. It said, you held fast to my name and didn't deny, didn't deny my faith. He didn't say the faith. He said my faith. And that's, that's a, you know, there's very important things in pronouns sometimes. Or one word can make a difference. You didn't deny the faith. He didn't say that. He said, you didn't deny my faith. And the Greek there would literally mean faith in me. In other words, he's saying, you didn't deny my faithfulness, my care for you. You didn't deny uh, my oversight over you, my preeminence. It's, it's not about doctrines and orthodoxy and creed and this is what I believe and things like that. You know, when the disciples were in the boat with the Lord and the storm came and they went to him and said, Master, don't you care? We're perishing. And he got up and he rebuked the wind and the waves and then he said, where was your faith? And he wasn't talking about, well, where is your, your Apostles' Creed and where is your uh, list of memory verses and uh, what are the books in the Bible? No. It's like, why weren't you trusting in me? in my faith, my faithfulness. And so the lesson here is we are in relationship with a person. We, we do believe in doctrines, creeds, theology, and things like that, but it's all to direct us to a person, to, and the person loves us and cares for us, and he even takes uh, the pronoun. If we would say it's my Jesus, he'll say it's my faithful martyr Antipas or my faithful uh, Linda or my faithful Eric or whatever. When you're going through something, He's, he, he takes hold of you, ownership of you, just as he wants us to take ownership of him and say, my Jesus, I, I trust in you. They didn't deny my faith, not the faith. You can go through uh, and hold the faith while denying Jesus' care for you and falling apart like a cheap suitcase when things don't work out. We have to encourage ourselves with the Lord and say he cares and, and is personal and he knows as I said last week, you know, he doesn't always come in and intervene right at the moment that we're expecting or wanting him to, but it's not like he doesn't know. And in his wisdom, he sees us through it. So good for them. They held that. What about the other church? Thyatira had some good things too. And in verse 19, it says, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Remember in Ephesus, they, he was telling Ephesus, you've lost your first love, remember, repent, and go back and do the first works. It seems like they were declining. Here, it seems like they had it together in this area. Their works were increasing. And that's, that's good. Your, your works, love, service, faith, 
and patience, all of this is wonderful. And your works, they're last, the last are more than the first. So I think that they had it in order, whereas Jesus rebuked Ephesus. Here they had it in order. There was still that love involved. And they were increasing. And that's what I've said before. Our, our relationship with the Lord should always be on the increase. Your spiritual growth should not be a bell curve. You can see a bell curve on the graph. You, you, you started off, you zoomed up, and then you kind of plateaued, and now you're down, and it's like it's not like it used to be in the past. It ought not to be that way. If it is, you can fix it. Our spiritual life should be a, a line of increase going up. Now, notice I wanted to say straight, but I didn't say straight. It's not a straight line going up. There's going to be dips. There's going to be setbacks. There's going to be oops, oops, and I did it again. And oh, oh man, I thought I had. And, but it, the point is, even though there's dips and setbacks, we should be moving onward and upward, moving forward. That's what a disciple does. A disciple follows Jesus and doesn't get hung up on the trips and the setbacks and the dips, but keeps going, getting back up and moving forward. And that's what Paul was talking about, about in Philippians 3, 14, where he said, I press on. I press on. Sometimes it doesn't mean I'm cruising. It doesn't mean that I'm you know, just having it easy all the way. Sometimes I have to press and go forward. But I press on towards the heavenly call, the upward, uh, the upward call of the heavenly prize in Christ Jesus. And even, even Paul, you know, he had a lot more than a lot of us do, but he knew that the point was I got to keep growing. I met a guy once who said that his church was was uh, starting to compromise, compromise their message because they wanted to appease some of the money givers in the church. I said, well, what are you, I mean, why are you still going there? Why don't you go somewhere else? And he said, well, I, you know, I know the people there. I don't want to leave the people, and I'm good. Don't worry about it. And I said, well, how can you get fed? And he said, I'm good. Don't worry about it. And I thought, that's, you know, on Maybe if you're getting fed from some other source and you're just trying to have grace, but I don't know if that's a good environment to grow in. I think if it were me, I'd want to get somewhere where I'm going to be fed and where I'm going to be growing. And to say, don't worry about it, that's like, you know, you can't just settle as a disciple. And, and here we see Jesus commends the works increasing. It's not just the works we do, but it's just our moving forward as his new creation, as his brother in the Lord, a son of, son of the Father, you know, a child of God. And uh, even Paul, in the verse before 314, I think it's uh, verse 12, he says, I have not considered, I, I do not consider myself to have already attained everything, but I press on to apprehend all that which was apprehended for me. So Paul was miles ahead of all of us, and yet he knew the need, I got to keep going, there's more. And again, you cannot exhaust the love of God. You cannot exhaust the resources of God. And if you've been blessed with any relationship with God, there's so much more. And that's what we ought to get from this, that we can go forward and our lives don't have to be a bell curve. Except mine, because my last name is Bell. And so it, that way it's a, cur a bell curve. But, but the actual curve is going onward and upward, even though there's dips and there's setbacks and things. And the beautiful thing about the gospel is, is if you have been on a bell curve, you can get back on to the right path. All it takes is a course correction. That's the remember, repent, and do thing I talked about in the, the first message to the churches. So there it is. Now, even though 
these were excellent things. Now we go to the, the problem. And the first one we see in verse 14, it says, I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrines of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Balaam, if you remember in the book of Numbers, was a so-called prophet of God whom uh, Balak hired, wanted him to curse the Israelites, and the Lord told him not to go, and he said he wouldn't go, but then he was enticed to ask the Lord again, and then he finally went. The Lord said, "Go, okay, go. And he said, I'll only speak what the Lord says. And Balak asked him to curse the Israelites, and instead of cursing the Israelites, Balaam blessed them, basically. He said, I have to speak what the Lord says, and he blessed them. But we didn't read the, the rest of the story. It doesn't explicitly detail it, but we learn from other passages, and like here, that later, Balaam compromised. Okay, I couldn't give a direct cursing, but here's what you want, want to do if you want to get the Israelites to stumble. You know, uh, teach them to eat to sac things sacrificed to idols, commit sexual immorality. So Balaam was a compromiser, and that compromised message was coming into the church there. And also the same thing in Thyatira, which is in verse 20. It says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow the woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So the same problem here, just two different compromising quote-unquote prophets. And they're talking about spiritual adultery and physical adultery and, and the wrong use of, of food. Actually, both things here, this is what, what, what we're saying. This church far as I know, has no problem with these specific things. I, I hope there's no problem. I don't know everything that's going on, but you look like a pretty good bunch. Uh, and uh, so there's nothing, but we can still get something, because here we have a problem with food being offered to, to idols. Food is a good thing, and we have a problem with sexual immorality, and sex is a good thing in its right place, in its right parameters. So the problem here is misuse of good things. You know, even ice cream, as divine a gift as that can be, can be misused. You can start to eat too much of it. It can become addictive or whatever. If you don't retain some control, something good like ice cream can become something bad. It's the misuse of good things. So it doesn't just pertain to food, but to sex. Sex is perfect in marriage, but outside of marriage, and outside of man and woman, it's not right. Yet the world is compromising and encouraging, promoting everything outside of God's parameters. Why does God have such strict parameters anyway? Because he loves us. He wants the best for us. And you think about how much heartache and problems going outside of his parameters have caused in people's lives. How much, uh, oh, devastation because people gave in to these compromises and committed sexual immorality. And God doesn't want that. He loves us. He wants best for us. And we might not understand it. That's, again, we trust in the Lord with all our heart. Lean not on our understanding. 
the culture is trying to give us an understanding that it's awkward and foolish and outdated to go against go according to God's principles but his principles don't change and we see the fruit of what happens when we go outside of God's principles that's when the devastation comes and that's when the problems magnify or increase and all along God said I I had it this way so that you wouldn't have to go through that and so you could have it better and we can compromise by misusing good things and or even in these areas I'm talking about, just letting little things come in. Now, all of us have compromises in our lives. I'm not, none of us are perfect. And I'm not saying that we're going to be judged for all the little compromises in our lives. Part of our spiritual growth is that the Lord has grace for us and he's moving us up so that we can have less and less of that. But we're talking about giving in to things that go against your convictions, against the righteousness of the word, and giving in when, when you have some control over it. If you don't have control over it, you need to get control over it. But what I'm saying is we need to be more on guard. I think in our day there are grace teachers, and I'm a grace teacher, but there are grace teachers that kind of give the message like, oh, it doesn't matter what you do. Well, we learn from these messages to the churches that it does matter what we do. We have a kingdom mandate, and our works are significant. And that should be encouraging for you to know that you have a significant mandate, a, a significant place in God's sight, and that your works count. And it's not just so that you can be a good Christian boy or girl. It's so that you can be in the development phase of God's elite, God's ruling elite, training to reigning group that's going to reign with him when all this is said and done. We see this later. We'll see this in, at the end of these um, Warnings. These are the promises of the overcomers. They will reign with him. And in order to reign with him, we have to be done with the compromise now. We need to show ourselves fit to be a part of that order. And that's what he's doing. That's part of his purpose, taking us through in this journey of life. So we have the problem presented there, the misuse of good things, and particularly spiritual and physical adultery and idol worship have to ask ourselves what what little things do we have in our lives that might be leading into something that could cause a problem down the road jesus didn't say oh that's okay grace wins the day but he presented himself to these churches as a judge now this is something that's going to be helpful to us as well because we don't like to think of jesus as the judge necessarily but it's an awesome thing to think of jesus as the judge because too often we have a picture of meek and lowly Jesus and that's and thank God for that picture thank God for his tenderness thank God for his love and care but we are and that's that's the lamb of God but he's also the lion of Judah and a fierce ferocious lion of Judah and that is the greatness and the power of God that is ours that is behind us that is for us and so it ought to give us a little a little scare. We ought to have a little fear of the Lord, but it's a good thing because we say, that's the God who, who loves me. That's the God who I can trust. That's the God who is against my foes and who can stand against me when this, this guy is for me, the line of Judah. He presents himself as a judge, but it also means we need to be reverent and be fearful of him in the sense, not that I'm afraid of God, but that I respect and honor him as the first. He is the first and last, as I said last week. 
and I need to look at him first because he is Lord and I am not. So in verse 18, he, he says, the angel of the church in Thyatira, right? These things says the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. And this is no wimpy, soft picture of Jesus. This is fire. And then in verse 12, he says, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. And we know from Hebrews 4.12 that the sharp two-edged sword refers to the word, right? For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. What it's saying here, the word of God is dangerous. It's a two-edged sword. It can cut down your foes. It can cut down the mountains before you. It can give you something to work with. we got to learn how to use the word. Too many people don't know how to use the word of God. They know how to study it, but they don't know how to use it in their situations, how to bring forth what God wants to see happen by obeying and by using the promises and standing on them and defeating the enemy who comes against us. That's all good, but in this verse here, it's two-edged. It's not just something we use, but it also judges us. It is the instrument of judgment. It exposes us. It exposes the thoughts and intents of our hearts, and that could be something to get nervous about, right? Some people say, well, I don't believe the word. They're playing themselves the judge of the word. We don't judge the word. The word judges us. D.L. Moody, I think it's D.L. Moody, said something like, sin will keep you from this book, but this book will keep you from sin. But if you're sinning and, and you're just not going to want to get to this book because it's going to expose that sin, it's going to make you uncomfortable and judge you. All right, now, hopefully we're going to be okay because there's always an answer in Christ. If you go two verses down from Hebrews 4.12, we see that we have great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, seeing we have that, let us hold fast our confession. We have a case for grace. We have a case for grace, but it's because we're seeking his faith. The word exposes and judges. We're going to see some harsh language spoken in this section of Revelation, but I'm saying that we have a high priest and we have a case for grace if we're seeking his face. That's a truth, and it, it rhymes wonderfully. He says in verse 16, this is where it gets, gets judgmental. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. There is, there is the word. The word is going to judge, and it's going to cut them down. And then verses 22 and 23. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one according to your works. That's some of the most fiercest language Jesus has ever spoken in Scripture that I believe. And I had to teach this once. I was teaching to a class, and I just got done trying to encourage the class and saying, Jesus only comes and brings life, and Jesus wants to heal the sick. He never brought sickness on anyone. He always healed the sick. Look in the Gospels. He healed them all, anyone who came to him. But then what do you do with this? 
Well, this shows Jesus in the context of judgment. Again, Revelation is a book about judgment. It is the context of judgment, and this judgment is directed to, towards those who are unrepentant. check something here. Yeah, unless they repent of their deeds. The, the judgment is to those who are unrepentant. And judgment is coming to those who are unrepentant. This does not apply to the sincere believer who is looking to the Lord, who has trusted in Jesus for salvation, for the forgiveness of sins, and has set their place in the race of seeking God's face. They have grace. Grace, and that is our gospel. And that's what we see in Hebrews 8.12. To those who are seeking God's grace, we have Hebrews 8.12. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. I will be merciful to your unrighteousness and your sins and your lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Are you holding on to your own past? Are you holding on to your sins and your lawless deeds? Are you beating yourself up every day because of your mess-ups and failures and you can't seem to get it right? You are seeking God's face. He says, I will be merciful to you, and I won't even remember it. It's like the goal. They keep scoring points in the goal, but the score doesn't register on the scoreboard. That's the good news of the gospel. You're, you're getting scored against and scored against, but it's not showing up on the scoreboard. The scoreboard says that you win already. You've got the the score of Jesus on your behalf. In the book of Revelation, it's a different story for those who are unrepentant. And that's all I'm saying here. We don't want to get confused. There are some people who feel very bad. I was one of them for a long time. Any anything, Anytime I don't feel like I've lived up to the standard, uh, woe is me, and how can God love me, and, and it's over. But if I'm concerned about that, and that's my heart, that I want to please him, I believe Hebrews 8.12 I believe Jesus died on the cross for me, rose from the dead, and that I can be free from that, that anxiety. But if I'm willfully unrepentant, that's another story. And where he threatens sickness, and, and here's the thing about sickness too. Some people say, well, God puts sickness on people. It's a blessing in disguise. It's never a blessing in disguise. God can use it for good, but the only time God puts sickness on people is in judgment. And this is what we're talking about here judgment. We get sick for a lot of reasons, and I don't believe it's God that brings cancers on people, unless in the context of judgment, maybe, but that God has already bought, brought all the judgment on Jesus on the cross. We are living in new covenant times, but in the end, as Revelation shows, there will be a closure of this time, and judgment will come. And the last thing I want to say about this is with Jezebel, and talked about her seducing those. That word for seduce doesn't just mean a mess up, but it means a willful, a willful fundamental departure from the truth. A willful fundamental departure from the truth. So what does all that mean for us? If we're seeking the Lord's face, we have a taste for but we also want to remember that what's going on out there, a lot of people are just compromising and saying, 
well, you know, everybody else is this, this, this. We have to understand there is the goodness and the severity of God. And that's what sets us on mission. We want to be examples of what grace can do in our life. We want to be examples to encourage people who are in a place of compromise that grace can cover you and get you out of that. And we want to be able to model that grace. And in order to model it, we have to believe and receive it for ourselves. And so he says, to those who overcome, in verse 17, what's going to happen? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. The hidden manna. You know, remember what manna was when the Israelites were in the wilderness and the Lord sent manna from heaven. It was bread from heaven. Here it's talking about hidden manna. And I believe what this means is hidden manna is not the common stuff that's on the shelf. This is the hidden manna. This is the good stuff that's kept in the back. This is the special stuff. In China, I was I worked with a brother. He owned a tea shop, green tea, and you know we drink uh, you know raw leaves in the cup. We don't we don't strain it. We take we drink it real raw leaves in the cup. It's wonderful. You get used to it. You strain it with your teeth sometimes. But he would have some tea in his shop that was you know just a few dollars a pound. But he'd also have some tea that was like a thousand dollars a pound, and he didn't keep it out in the open. And, and part of the culture in China, in the tea shops, you go in and you drink it and you, you just chat and have a little community with the people and then you buy some tea. And so he'd serve tea to folks. But he wouldn't serve that special tea, the hidden manna, back in the back. I got some, though. He served some to me. He said, here, want some of this. And I'll tell you a secret. It didn't taste any better than the other stuff. But this is the earth and this is corrupt. God's hidden manna, I believe, is better. And but you know, whatever it is, I think what he's saying is, I've got the best reserved for you. I've got something that no one else can have. It's yours if you want it. To those who overcome, it's yours. Do you want to go for it, or do you want to give in to the compromise? You want to go for it. Here's what it is: you get the hidden manna. Not only that, I'll give him a white stone, and a stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. And I think of people who are in love, who have some kind of jewelry or ring or locket or something, and they have a special inscription that they give to their loved one, and only the two know it. It's their little intimate inscription with each other. So what it's saying here is that God has something for you as well, not just the good stuff, the hidden stuff, but he has a place of intimacy with you that will only be between you and him, bringing you into that place of the elite with Jesus, the godly elite, the godly communion, the intimacy with Christ that's only between you and him. It's a personal, personal, cherished item, that white stone with a new name that's only between the two of you. That's awesome. And that's what he promises. And, and in addition to that, in verse 26 and 27, to the overcomers, he says, he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. I also have received, as I also have received from my father. 
There it is. There's the godly elite, the intimate with Jesus, who are also the instruments of his reign and rule, and that we will be the ones to exercise kingdom rule and authority with him, and that's what this is all about. He's raising us up to give us power. But he won't give power to those who can't prove faithful with what he gives us now. And so that's why we want to see how we can progress in our faith, how we can grow as disciples, how we can get into a place where we're experiencing greater intimacy and power with the Lord Jesus and, and what that means for us now as well as when it comes later to that. You know, people look on the Christians now. They mock the Christians now. They make the Christians look weak and foolish in the media. But here's what the biblical picture is. You're going to rule with a rod of iron, and the rest of that will be dashed to pieces. We are the ones that are going to rise up and look different in the end. And like I said, the world's appearances are deceitful. Everything looks wonderful and power and influential now, but it's all going to disappear at the coming in of the kingdom of God. And so we know it now, praise God. We see it now. But I'd like to close just saying, what is it? Is there anything in your life that you want to change? Or, you know, where are you in your spiritual walk? Are you moving forward? Do you understand and see your destiny? Do you have an end game before you that's biblical? Are you moving in that direction? And what kind of things, what kind of things can you can you adjust or alter? My last story here in China, we were used to drink this uh, this wonderful food called over-the-bridge noodles. Over-the-bridge noodles. And what it was is they give you this big bowl of hot broth, boiling broth, with excellent seasonings in it and everything, and it's covered with a layer of oil on it. And then they give you plates with raw meats, thinly cut raw meats and vegetables and other items that you throw in and you throw the meats in the broth and it cooks it up while you're waiting there and you eat it in a few minutes with your your stuff and anyway it's so good and it's one of the things I miss you can't really get it at a Chinese restaurant here or anything like that but you choose what you put in the bowl and so uh, you know I put the meats the lettuce the beans sprouts and one day I was ordering over the bridge noodles from some guy on the street and he said, what do you want? And I said, well, I'll make it chicken. And he gave me some chicken slices and things like that. And he said, he started making the overbridge noodles. And I, I thought, what's this? You know, usually the customer makes it. They just put it on the table, and we cook our stuff, and we do it. But he started doing it. And I was like, well, okay. And he throw, threw in the chicken. He said, do you want uh, peppers? I said, yeah, throw in the peppers. And then he said, do you want ginger? I said, throw in the ginger. Garlic, yeah, yeah. And then he said, do you want... Uh, do you want pork fat? I said, no. And he threw in the pork fat. And then he said, do you want pickled radishes? I said, no. And then he threw in the pickled radishes. And then he said, it was something else. What you? Everything I said, no. He, he didn't see. I think we had a problem of communication. And he kept throwing this stuff in. And it made me, ugh. And I tasted the over-the-bridge noodles, and it didn't quite taste the way I and I thought, you know what? I compromised. I should have made a stand and told that guy, no, you stop that and give me an, I, We don't have to be ugly. But the point I see in this is that, you know, 
we need to make a stand sometimes and not give in. Even though it's easier, it was easier for me just to let him do it because I didn't want to go through the trouble of, you know, looking ugly or, or getting a new bowl and having to wait longer and things like that. But it affected the taste of my meal. And in our Christian lives, if we don't make a stand for things, we can still have our meal, but it might affect the taste to ourselves as well as to God. And it might be working against us. I'd rather have things where it's, where it's tasting, good, tasting good, taste and see that the Lord is good, where I'm, where I'm excited about what the Lord's doing. And if there's somebody who wants to add some ingredient into my life that doesn't quite fit according to the prescription in the Word of God, then I need to stand and say no. And, you know, I'm not talking about, you know, I know people at work sometimes have to compromise and give in to a little political correct language and things like that, right, Eric? you got to do stuff. That's not going, that's not what I'm talking about. There is a, a place to get along. But there comes a point in time where it may get to, this is directly against my convictions. This is directly against the word of God. And I'm sorry, no. And that's where it can get difficult. But that's where you have the best ingredients. That's where you're going to taste the best. That's what's going to get you into the place of the hidden manna. And I don't believe those promises are simply just for in the end. I believe you start to taste and see that the Lord is good now, and he gives you things and encourages you as you go along. And that's the race we're in. That's what I want to finish well in. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We don't want to hear, well, that'll hit you later. Anyway, so praise the Lord.